Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami We are here as strangers in one way, but we're really close relatives. We may never have met, but we meet in that which we all love and cherish. And that is the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are. And the ability to discover that within us. We trust in this possibility and we make sacrifices to investigate and test that. The way that this evolves is really, it starts with trust, it is sustained through trust, and it culminates in trust. Without trusting the path, there's no way that we can fulfill it. We start maybe with a little bit of faith, preliminary kind of faith. But as we uncover and remove the layers of delusion and obstruction, we develop more and more trust because we start to see what works and what doesn't, what prevails in us that is beautiful, that is supportive, that is freeing, and what chains us, binds us, defeats us, impoverishes us. And so then that's how faith develops. If you walk in the woods and you stand still for a long time, the creatures begin to come out. You start to see more. You can put your hand out and the chickadees will land and feed almost instantly because they know. But they've done that through many years of experiencing having that contact and never being harmed. So on the path, when we strive, we persevere, we endure all kinds of privations, what seem like privations, but they're not that serious. We just have to keep quiet and not eat too much and stay in one position for long periods of time. And lo and behold, things are revealed to us. They come forward into consciousness because Mara has retreated and understood this is not safe ground. And these jewels of wisdom and clarity and calm in the heart manifest because it's safe ground. We've offered 
forth our trust to ourselves. And so the best in us is revealed. This is a discovery that each one of us has to come to on our own. No one else can do this for us. On this way that curves and twists through very steep terrain and seems endless, one of the things that we learn to trust is staying in the present moment and not looking ahead, not having expectations. At the same time, not looking back and wishing that we could repeat the interesting mind states or exotic experiences that we've already had. And this lesson is very obvious because one of the early instructions is not to think, not to plan, not to dwell in memories, even of our present life experience. Anticipating the future or dwelling on all that we enjoyed in our youth or yesterday's pleasures and delights cannot help us in developing present moment awareness. Rather, they are distractions. So in the same way, past, future, expectation or memory, these can be burdens. They can prevent those things that we seek from being revealed to us. We really need to restrain the mind and stay exactly where we are. We have our feet planted here on the earth in this moment and not jump ahead into the next moment. That's really hard to do for obvious reasons. One of them is that we are being trained all the time to plan and invest in stuff, in money, in achievement, in gaining information that will give us, yield us results in the future. Even when we train our minds to meditate and and still the mental formations, we're kind of doing it with the expectation that we're going to get some results. We do. We have this idea that there's this goal and we're going to get it. But the best result is just being caring and attentive to the work of this moment, of just developing skills and developing qualities of mind that will help us grow on the path, but sticking to the present bit, the immediate work, rather than hoping for any gain. That's really going to be the best investment that we can make. So we have to just get down to it and do the work. People often ask me, how long is it going to take? Well, there's no answer. It's different for every single person. The Buddha lists four types of practitioner. You've probably all heard this. There's the yogi or the student of the way that has little pain, and makes quick progress. And there's the one that has little pain and makes slow progress. There's the one that has a lot of pain 
and makes quick progress. And the one that has a lot of pain and makes slow progress. That's what most of us are. I don't even want to say it. (laughs) It's too scary. A lot of dukkha and, and things don't happen fast enough. Really, pain is our teacher. We're not masochistic. We just have to understand that the human realm is a a realm of suffering, a realm of... Should I start over? (laughs) (laughs) The fading of all the functions, the fading away. You know, these things are not to stop us. We just do the best we can. This human journey is bound for fading away. The whole thing is a fading away. There's an arising, a sustaining, and a fading away. And when we get to the fading away stage, there's no lamenting of it. The lamenting is like the second arrow. There's the, the first arrow is the fading away, and the second arrow is the lamenting of it. We suffer... The body is just one big bag of suffering. And we all have different portions of it according to our karmic burden or predicament. So some of us suffer a little bit and some of us suffer more. The physical suffering is doable. It really is. No matter how terrible it is. The mental suffering That's what we can learn how to overcome. And the way to do that is to completely relinquish the ownership of it. My suffering, really. If we trust the process fully, this is an incredible asset. I can't emphasize how much of a support that is for relinquishing ownership of that suffering. I live on the other side of the border over there in Ontario. Do you have black flies here? You do. So they come for a short time, about a week. But they are voracious little creatures. The other day, one of our comrades called them Buddhist black flies, (laughs) the ones in the monastery. They don't mean to harm us. They're just hungry. They bite. The other day... I was wearing this bud net for the black flies, and I lifted the net because I felt that I was talking to somebody who was visiting the monastery, and I I thought it would be more polite to speak with the net up. And a black fly went right in, and I swallowed it. I think it bit me as it went in. So I started to feel this inflammation, and I was coughing and trying to spit it out and get it out. It felt like a burning coal, the arrow of physical suffering. And I could see the way the mind was grasping onto this feeling of inflammation, which was growing and getting more and more intense. I started to think about the future. Am I going to be able to breathe? And then came on the heels of that the fear of not being able to breathe, which is not a pleasant feeling. That was the mental attitude to the little black fly jumping down my throat. 
I started to notice the second arrow that I was just shooting the second arrow, shooting myself with it. So this is when I felt such a gratitude for the teaching because, of course, this person I was talking to was watching me. I was struggling and trying to look dignified. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I felt extremely foolish. In the end, you know when you can laugh at your own dukkha, you're not owning it. It's just such a simile for the whole path. You're going through some kind of trial. Somebody's criticizing, leaving the monastery. You're having conditions that you can't deal with, not enough help, whatever it is. And you feel that it's impossible to continue. I can't do this. This is not doable. This suffering is beyond doing. I can't endure anymore. And then the mind gives us kind of a script. And we become bound to follow it because we're believing it. We're listening to it. That's an opportunity right there not to own that. No one is out there telling us, you can't do this. It's our, this is our own lack of bringing the path in front of us. No one is preventing us from following it except our own deluded mind, our own wrong view, our own lack of trust, our own association with our suffering as me and mine. My battle, my Mara, just give Mara a throne in your heart. And that's the end of the path right there. I think of the black fly as a kind of teacher. You swallow a black fly and it bites you. And you can't breathe, you're suffocating. You're trying to look good and be normal. But you can't because you're freaking out. (laughs) And not only that, you're blaming the black fly or you're blaming the conditions, or you're angry at the person that bit you, that blamed you, that ruined your life, that deserted you, that betrayed you. But these things happen. Even the Buddha, the Blessed One. Imagine if there was a Buddha living here in Wisconsin, just outside of Madison, right here in Pine Lake Camp, what would we do? We would be coming every day, and we'd move out of Madison, we'd move here, and we'd be staying as close as we could to the Buddha and listening to the Buddha. But even the Buddha in his lifetime was attacked, verbally attacked, even physically attacked. People tried to kill him, destroy him, abuse him. They did abuse him blame him, so many things. And he was one of such perfect parami, one so highly developed, one so wise, one so all-seeing, one so pure. How could people do that? In later years, when after I became a nun and had, had more compass to work with in life, when... Um, really awful things happened. 
I use this as a contemplation. If, if awful things could happen to the Buddha, why shouldn't they happen to me? I'm such a low being compared to the Buddha. Why wouldn't I also be subject to various kinds of abuse or have blame inflicted on me, which I didn't deserve? You know, The ego is, is claiming its right to be free of all these insults and attacks. But no, they happen. That's because they're karmic reasons. We may not remember what transpired in a past life or what we might have done to hurt another person or ourselves. What foolishness we got involved with. And whatever happens to us now is the result. Cause effect. It doesn't happen accidentally. So if we reflect in that way, it can help us to be free of the shackles of ownership of this suffering and just attribute it to karmic causes and results, vipaka, the results of um, our lack of wisdom, lack of freedom from conditions. And now we bear it. We bear it and we we reflect on what the Buddha taught us to overcome these conditions. And what he taught us was not to try to prop up the ego, win somehow, and blame someone else or retaliate, react in unskillful ways, but just to continue in the present moment to notice how the energies of unskillfulness affect our own hearts and minds. And while we bear witness to that, we can little by little learn to hold those outflows, to restrain our unskillful speech, unskillful habits of thought, certainly our unskillful conduct, so that we'd free ourselves from all the bonds of past blindness we create for ourselves a path of freedom. It takes this very meticulous care and diligent watching, applying the skillful eye, the Dhamma eye that knows this is skillful, this is true, this is not skillful, this is not true. We grow that which is good in us and we abstain from that which just perpetuates our suffering perpetuates our bondage to the unhelpful or dangerous situations that we've gotten ourselves in. I'm sure all of us have been bitten by something like a black fly in one way or another. And the best thing to do is, yeah, forgive it. Poor little thing, you went the wrong way. You're somewhere in in my breathing system. And eventually, yeah, I eat a little morsel of something and try to get it down. And eventually it's evacuated, gone, dissolves. And this is true with our our dukkhas. We're very good at calling dukkha by different names, like painful, burning, piercing, throbbing, freezing, numbing, throbbing, crashing, thundering, 
fiery, scary, different forms of hatred, ill will, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance, impatience, selfishness, obsession, sense of abandonment, sense of hopelessness, despair, grief, loss, all of those things, betrayal, as we've said, abandonment. Whatever has impacted us in the past, we somehow learned what it is to be impacted. And if we own it and identify with it, we're very good at finding ways of repeating that, even when the source of that impact is gone. You know, like learning how to be victims and repeating that, or learning how to be aggressors and repeating that. So many unskillful ways that we dredge up suffering and perpetuate it. The Buddha, through his own example, did not receive the suffering that was inflicted on him. He did not receive it. He did not take ownership of it. Very good example. At one time, a Brahmin um, came to the Buddha and abused him heavily. You know, used very harsh words, kind of called him names, insulted him. And the Buddha just maintained a very calm demeanor. And this shocked the Brahmin. He said, Venerable Lord, I abuse you. I vilify you. And your countenance remains shiny, lucid, and pleasing. Why is that? And the Buddha says, Brahman, if you were to invite guests and lay out all kinds of savories for them to eat, a feast, a banquet of delicious foods for them to eat, and they didn't partake of those foods, to whom would they belong? The Buddha did not receive his anger, his ill will, his vilification, his insult. So they belong to the Brahman. If we don't receive the destructive acts, the cruelty, the unkindness of other people, they will know that. If we don't receive them, if we just know this person is acting towards me because of ignorance, they're creating terrible karma for themselves, and I have done nothing wrong, I've done nothing unskillful, I need not feel afraid, I need not feel downtrodden, I need not feel abused. This is very difficult to do. We might convulse. We might suffocate like the black fly until we see our trembling, until we feel our energies impacted and we can bring to bear the tools of the practice the way the Buddha taught to be very mindful of the painful feeling without thinking you awful person, how could you do that to me? Without getting the second arrow and stabbing ourselves with it. 
because of our mental pain about the conditions. A layer of personal vendetta or dukkha on top of the dukkha that's been given. So then we learn how to endure it and forgive and not own and not carry it forward and make it into the next drowning or grieving or being lost. As an aspiration, we may be able to do it for one second and then we spin again into why me, woe is me, etc. Mindfulness and clear understanding of our karmic predicament is a resource that is developed moment by moment. So even if we're failing, if we're drowning, and we can take one breath that gives us sustenance, air, freedom from that whirlpool, then another one. Those two breaths are a moment of forgiveness, a moment of kindness, a moment of freedom, a moment of relief. And we collect those moments until we can stand up for ourselves and really look that situation in the eye and be okay with it. We have to trust that we can do that. Practice is not just sitting in these perfect conditions and getting free here on the cushion. The real maturity in practice comes when we're thrown out to the lions and they bite. They try to take a bite. And then how do we do when they're biting? What do we do when that's happening? This is where we get the rehearsal. This is rehearsal time for the real-life situations where other people are not just sitting and breathing quietly. They're acting out their own traumas, their own good or really unwholesome karma, whatever it is. There are beings that have shown us this is possible and that do this. They do bring the practice to life in the world, in the most terrible conditions. I remember the story of Ajahn Suchito when he was in India with Nick Scott in the forest, and they were attacked by bandits. Bandits! One of them accosted Ajahn Suchito. They took all their possessions. Then he was going to harm him. And what did Ajahn Suchito do? He offered him his head. He bent over and offered him his head. And this bandit was so shocked by the humility and fearlessness of this gesture that he backed off, didn't touch him. I experienced this myself when I was attacked once walking on the the day on a beach in Africa and a young man came after me and attacked me and was going to rape me. We were on a cliff and the ocean was below us and I thought, well, this is it. And I started chanting and he said, what is that? What are you doing? And I said, I'm chanting. I wasn't a nun at the time. I was working for Foster Parents Plan International. So he said, are you a nun? 
this is funny. And I said, no. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm chanting to God to help me because no one else will. And he said, okay, I won't touch you. It was the same kind of thing. I just did that instinctively. I wasn't brave. I was terrified. But I was practicing a lot, taking refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And that was the very first thing that came in my mind, was to reach out to a higher force, a higher energy, to give me strength, to take strength in that situation. And I was sure that I was going to die. Fortunately, this young man had some goodness in him and responded well. And I think that if we respond to a higher frequency, that is a protection. But if we respond to a lower frequency, we just create more trouble. Death is not to be feared. What is there to die except the body? So if we repeat and practice that which is noble, that which is wise, that which gives us clarity, which gives us courage, which gives us a sense of fearlessness rather than fear, and empowers us through something that goes beyond the body, beyond the physical strength of the body or the physical protection, but the protection of the heart, This is what will really save us, rescue us. Even if the body has to be let go of, we're here spiritual beings on a human journey. We're not here to be human forever. What if we lived forever? So what? We'd have all the luxuries and comforts of humanness, What would that gain us? But actually we're here to develop our full spiritual potential. And that takes us well beyond embodiedness. So this body is just like a vehicle that has a die-by date. And if we walk towards that die-by date with skill and joy, peace, expiring, It's happening. The way we do that, we have to be healthy. I don't mean physically healthy. We have to be mentally well to be able to do that well. That's what we're trying to cultivate here, the trust in this process so that we can develop the mental skills, skills of the heart, to die beautifully, ready for awakening, if not awake. Opening to the letting go of this, of these khandas, is an incredible opportunity. I'll never forget Sayura Upandita telling me once, I was on retreat in Burma, and this woman's mother died on the retreat. And she came to Sayura crying her eyes out and saying, my mother has died. Sayadaw was in a very positive mood. He said, she died on retreat. It's the best possible death. We should rejoice. I'd never heard anything like that. 
So then I thought, okay, I want to die on retreat. <laughs> I was like, what an, what an invitation. It was such a gift. Like, wow, I could die on retreat. I was already a nun, so I'd already taken a step towards death. This form is, um, I think it's, there's a kind of dying. You, you make a determination to die to the world in a certain way. And if you keep your vows, there's many, many deaths that happen in the process of learning how to live those vows rather than just memorize them, to really live them. Live them with compassion for yourself and others. It's not just a form that you present to the world. It's a real opening to the the suffering of the heart. The letting go becomes much bigger than you ever imagined. Nature gives us a monastic calling as we get old. We're forced to become monks and nuns, if we give ourselves to it properly. In Perth, we have a beautiful farmer's market. Once a week, we'd stand with our bowls, and people give us offerings of food. Sometimes they try to put a coin in. We have to tell them to take it out, which is contrary to their idea of generosity. What do you want? Just some food. Oh, food. Well, I don't have any food. But there's food all around. This is a a test. (laughs) Some people get it, and then they go and buy some food and put it in the bowl. I see these people, old farmers, quite a wonderful community, and some of them hobble along in the market, really stooped and bent, but they come in their fine clothing and they try to present themselves as well people, but you could see that they're just falling apart. They dress up in all this finery. What will you hide by that? Seeing women put on makeup or dye their hair, when you're 80 and you're dyeing your hair, it doesn't look right. So you might as well have the color that Nature gives us, or not wear a wig, and have no hair. I remember once I had a friend, she was in her 80s, and she had cancer, and she was a very elegant woman. I used to visit her and teach her how to meditate. One day I knocked on the door, and she's wearing a wig. And I said to her, B, why did you put that on? Look at me. (laughs) She said, oh, you're right. She had lost her hair. I feel happy that I can make a stand for the real beauty, not makeup or smooth skin or being able to stand up completely straight. Yeah, we get stooped and our balance isn't good. Holding the bowl, it gets heavy. But I stand there. It's such a privilege to be able to do this and keep doing it, being like a flag to other people to say, just be what you are and be happy, be grateful, be kind, be generous. 
And then, of course, the people that have the least, they give the most. They give so freely. Not always, but of course. Those are the best gifts of all. Sadhu Karan Sadhu Karan